the first speaker today is Lene Gordon. She's the Deputy Science Director and Associate Professor with the Stockholm Resilience Center. And I'm going to be brief and just turn it over to Lene right now. Thank you. Thank you, Anne, and thanks everyone for uh, inviting me here today. It's been a very interesting conference, and I've learned a lot so far. Um, what I'm going to do today, if I... Ah, here it is. Like what? Okay, sorry. Uh, so what I'm going to do today is to give you a very broad overview of some of the issues related to water, agriculture, and ecosystem services in order to build the social ecological resilience in, in the big global era that we live in today that we often call Anthropocene. So in the talk, I will talk about the new predicament that we're living under in the Anthropocene, the role of water and agriculture in agroecosystems, where agriculture is a part of a larger landscape um, and especially for ecosystem services and for regime shifts. Someone said before I gave this talk that if I'm going to use ecosystem services, I should define it. So I'll try to do that by actually using the photo that you see on this slide. And I think, to me, that photo illustrates is one of the best examples of, of um, 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 the substitute of an ecosystem service. You can say that it's a human bee. It's actually a man pollinating apple trees. And uh, I think that illustrates a bit of the costs that losing some ecological processes actually have for society. So to me, ecosystem services are the benefits that ecological processes are generating for humans. And I also want to be clear that when I talk about ecosystem services, I don't only talk about wild nature or wild ecosystem systems, but I really talk about all the type of ecological processes in our entire landscapes and seascapes. So in agricultural systems, there are also a bunch of ecosystem services that are generated, food production being the main one, maybe, or agricultural commodities of different, uh, different types, but also... Um, hydrological uh, regulation or carbon dioxide um, uh, sequestration, etc., or other ecosystem processes. So that's my definition of ecosystem services. Regime shifts I'm going to talk a bit later on in the talk. I'm also going to talk about how uh, water and agriculture management change ecosystem services and can trigger regime shifts, and how we can manage landscapes better to build a more resilient agriculture. I'm going to move a bit between different scales, starting off at the global scale and then landing a bit in the realities of farming in Tanzania, in sub-Saharan Africa. But first of all, I think this uh, picture is one of the best illustrations of, of uh, how big impact agriculture actually has on the planet today. It weird, uh, what, what you should see on this axis is... Uh, is um, I don't know what those <laughs> signs actually mean, but I think the one going to the green should be crop plants, and the one going to the more orange should be um, uh, rangelands or grazing areas. So what this illustrates is that agriculture today actually covers somewhere in between 35 and 40% of the terrestrial uh, surface of the earth. And I think that really illustrates that Farmers on this planet are really the stewards of our landscapes today. We heard some great examples of how farmers are actually the stewards in the produ pr 
producing panel before lunch. But that farmers have a role of both producing food but also managing these landscapes in a good way that preserves the, the beneficial functions that the landscapes have. I think it's quite interesting to look over time what's happened in terms of this, this is a curve that's about how temperatures have been varying over the last 100,000 years. And as you can see, it's only over the last 10, 15,000 uh, years that we actually have had a very stable climate. This is the Holocene era, and that's also the time in which agriculture has mainly been developed. So the era that we have been living in for a long time has been an unusual era on this planet. There was a group of scientists, some of my colleagues, uh, that brought, brought together um, a few years ago to discuss what are we actually doing to the planet Earth today? Are there any risks that we are changing processes at a global scale to the extent that we might actually flip out of this quite stable period, the Holocene state? And they came up with the concept of planetary boundaries, uh, illustrating how nine different things that we are changing on the planet today are actually pushing the, the planet into uh, a more uncertain state. What you see here is a green um, circle in the middle. That's what they call the safe operating space. As long as we keep within that, we don't run the risk of sort of flipping into something unknown and more dynamic uh, system. Um, and as you see, we have already crossed that safe operating space for biodiversity, for climate change, and for nitrogen cycles. It's quite interesting that agriculture actually contributes to these planetary boundaries uh, quite substantially. These are some of the estimates. About 20 to 30% of greenhouse gases is from agriculture. About 60% of nitrogen, 98% of the phosphorus, uh, about 80 to 90% of the... Um, uh, global freshwater use in the way they've defined it in this, uh, but 100% of the change in land use. For biodiversity, it's quite different, difficult to estimate, but around 37% for bird species is one of the estimates that I've found in the literature. Um, so agriculture are changing around a lot of things on the globe today, which also means that we need to find better ways to manage agriculture in new ways, because we also know that we need to expand agricultural production to meet the demands of the growing population. There are other things that are also changing rapidly. These are uh, some of the rapid changes in, in both land and water-related um, uh, aspects on the globe. And the one in, or ones in orange is, uh, for example, groundwater depletion, but also estimates of new disturbances that we are, are, have, see increases of, so increases in landslides and in droughts, for example. These are very global scale uh, pro uh, things that are happening. I'm just going to turn down to what, what the farmers on the ground might be experiencing. So we were, uh, I've been involved in a project in the Macanya catchment in Tanzania uh, about small scale system innovations in rain-fed agriculture that can improve water management. And when we came into this uh, area the first time, we wanted to understand what, what, are, what are the realities and what are the changes that the farmers are experiencing here on the ground? And I know that Christo gave away some of the um, things that I was going to talk about the, in the morning talk. But one thing that all the farmers are saying all the time is that it's really getting drier. 
what we did and what Christopher told you this morning is that we looked at whether that's actually true if you looked at rainfall patterns. And if you see the seasonal, you can see here that they have two rainy seasons and it's very variable how much the, uh, the seasonal rainfall is. But the trend over time is not changing. So just looking at that, no, it's not getting drier. But then we started to look at how dry spells, how common dry spells are. We define dry spells as being a period of uh, 25 days or longer during the rainy season when the, there is no rainfall. And then we could see there's been a dramatic increase in dry spell frequency. So from the early 1980s, it's actually only been three seasons with no dry spells. And of course, this is something that the farmers are really experiencing as a, a, a drier climate. We wanted to follow up on this study to see, is that only a case for, for the farmers in this area where we're working with? To, to look across the whole sort of sub-Saharan Africa, if we can see similar patterns. And this is really a working progress. One of the problems, actually, of doing such a study across the whole continent, especially across Africa, is that it's so difficult to get data. If you want data on daily rainfall, which you need, it's, there's basically very hard to get. There is no public available, and it's very costly to get it. This is the best that we come up to, but a lot of the data series actually ends in the 1980s. But you can see that in many places there are actually increasing dry spell frequencies. This is, of course, something that affects the resilience of the farmers. Just going back to one of the farmers, this is Idi Makarina that we've been working quite closely with as one of our experimental farmers. He's experiencing uh, crop reductions on average every second year and crop failure on average every four years. The one thing that we have been working with him and other farmers on is how can we actually find uh, small-scale system technologies like conservation tillage, water harvesting and supplemental irrigation to try to enhance uh, soil moisture availability um, uh, to be able to cope with some of these dry spells. But another thing that we were also looking at was if we only, what, what happens if we only focus on the crop production and what is the role of the, if we don't only focus on the crop production, what's the role of the surrounding landscape in also being important for the livelihoods of these farmers? We looked at what are the other ecosystem services that these farmers are, are using, and especially in these times when crops are failing. We asked two questions, basically. When crops fail, where do farmers get their food from? And as you can see in this uh, uh, photo, um, more than 60% is bought during these seasons. And these are primarily subsistence uh, farmers. But, but, and, and in a normal year, they would uh, get about 80% of their food supply from their own field. But during uh, these uh, dry years, they only, they only get a tiny proportion from their own field. Uh, the, the rest of it, them, uh, they either get it from... Um, yeah, some from storage, but also from livestock and from wild growing fruit and ve vegetables. Um, so the second question we asked is, if, where does the income come from uh, to be able to buy this food? And when we looked at that, savings is part of the solution, uh, wage labor and remittances are big parts of the solution, but a lot of it also comes from, from other types of ecosystem products that they use from the surrounding landscape. So one of the main sort of conclusions from that is that the, the surrounding landscape is actually a very important insurance mechanisms when crops are failing. So if we are trying to, 
to build resilience of these uh, farmers. We also need to understand how the larger landscape contributes to this resilience, so that we don't for, um, change the landscape in a way that they can't support this insurance mechanism, unless it's definitely not needed anymore. So I think in general, this is a very sort of uh, sketchy <laughs> picture or um, um, cartoon picture, but I just wanted to show a little bit of, of what are the main different ecosystem services that we are actually changing from uh, uh, the way that we manage water in agriculture. And this uh, in, um, comes from something called the Comprehensive Assessment of Water Management in Agriculture, where I was one of the co-leaders of the chapter that dealt with ecosystem effects. And it was done a few years ago, driven by International Water Management so it, there are a lot of trade-offs among ecosystem services and uh, among the beneficiaries of ecosystem services. And I'm sure these are not really new to you. But I mean, if we ch really change the landscape from, from a more sort of wild landscape to a more um, a production landscape, we often get enhanced food production, enhanced timber production, enhanced cultural values also. A lot of the livestock in these landscapes, uh, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, is not only for for production purposes, but also a very important part of the culture. Uh, but a lot of the consequences are on reduced water downstreams, reduced culture, other type of reduced culture values, less water regulations in, for example, wetlands, changes to water quality, changes to groundwater, and also uh, quite a lot of simplification of the landscape, which might change the buffer capacity of the landscape. One of the main points that we noticed when we did that review is that uh, even looking at sort of water management in agriculture, it's seldom that the effects on ecosystems are from just withdrawing water and the consequences it gets downstream. But it's about how we change the landscape, how that affects the whole hydrological flows in the landscape. So by altering forest to grassland, for example, we change evapotranspiration and we change infiltrations to groundwater flows. Um, we, um, um, yeah, so, so it's really about how we manage water as a bloodstream of the whole biosphere. What we also saw about that we have very different knowledge about different processes, that most of the, the most well-known effects are really on, on aquatic systems, coastal zones and wetlands. We know quite well what the effects are on those systems. We know much less about what the effects are on terrestrial systems. So from this other part of the hydrological cycle that we're changing at the same time. What are effects on water tables, on moisture recycling, that evaporation actually can come down at rainfall in some places. And the effects on land cover in general. Some of the emerging cross-cutting issues that we also had even, are even less known are to what extent do we risk crossing tipping points or causing regime shifts from these type of changes? Uh, can these type of changes actually hit back and, and cause declines in agricultural production capacity? How does it impact poverty and health? And I know some of these aspects I think Doug will talk about later in, in this uh, talk. But I will go into to especially looking at the regime shift. And regime shifts are basically tipping points where once you cross the threshold, it's very difficult to go back. So just as an example, if you imagine a landscape where you have very heterogeneous vegetation cover, and you have a, go from no, precip um, no precipitation to lots of precipitation, 
you can imagine that the response would be quite linear because you have different species responding at different times. If you have a vegetation cover with only one species, you can imagine a very rapid response at a certain time. Um, if you have a forest, for example, uh, one of the things that forests can do is actually enhance uh, precipitation uh, in itself. So if you clear the forest, you might actually end up in, the, uh, uh, in a situation where you don't get enough rainfall to get the forest back. That's what we call a hysteretic effect, and that's what we call a regime shift. Basically crossing a threshold where it's very difficult to go back. So these regime shifts are surprising, often sudden losses of ecosystem services. They really need new approaches to analyzing ecosystem services, and we need to adapt management practices to um, go on with that. I'm going to skip through this. I'm realizing I'm getting slow with time. Okay, but um, but we we looked at, and Christo also mentioned it. We looked at where are where across the hydrological cycle do we see different type of changes, uh, uh, different type of regime shifts happening. So we know that. By cutting precip uh, evapotranspiration by large-scale land cover changes, you can actually have effects causing wet savannas to dry savannas. Uh, forest to savannization regime shifts have been suggested for the Amazon, for example, and shifts in the monsoon systems. In the, we also can see, in, for example, Australia, where vegetation, wood vegetation has been cleared in the landscape, that's increased water tables to rise mobilizing salt in the landscape and caused massive uh, dryland salinization. Once that has happened, it's very difficult to get productive landscape back. And some of the other speakers will go into a bit more of the more aquatic regime shift. I just want to go back to the, to the farmer in Tanzania, where we'll try to understand whether there has actually been a more social ecological regime shift. We define the system in terms of both a productive state, which can basically uh, uh, uphold the livelihoods of the farmers in the region, and the degraded state in which the, this capacity has been undermined. And we thought that the main processes that are defining these two states are either so soil water uh, index, so how much soil water is there for providing a good crop, and what's the capacity of other ecosystem services to support this when the crops are failing. What we have seen that over time, from the 1950s to uh, 1980s and then till today, we've actually had a regime shift going from a very a quite productive state into a degraded state. And I'm not going to go into the processes that have been driving this shift, more than to say that it's been both by a physical and social processes that has really been driving this uh, to a more degraded state. So what we're trying to find out now is how can you actually move the system back into a more uh, productive state? Part of that solution is looking more into soil water holding uh, techni um, techniques, but also ecosystem management in better ways. Another thing that's also happening is that income is diversifying in the region, providing additional insurance mechanisms for the farmers. The one we can also ask is, smallholder farming actually viable in the future, or do we need to transform into something different? So what is resilience? To me, resilience is the capacity of a system to, to um, deal with change and disturbance and continue to develop without risking to go through this regime shift. To withstand shocks, but also to use those shocks as catalysis of renewal and 
and novelty and even innovation. And I think if you compare it to sustainability, I think resilience really look at both persistence, adaptability, and transformability. In, in a paper that I've done with some colleagues, we've been trying to understand what would be the goals of a resilient global agriculture. And, and I think one of the main goals is to really stay within the planetary boundaries for the pers persistence and prosperity of human environment systems, while still generating the capacity to reduce hunger and malnutrition and continue to offer livelihood support for people. So, how to get there? Um, I have to sort of speed up, but uh, I think some of the main things are also that we're today sort of having quite a lot of maladaptive practices that are in inefficient and actually doesn't stimulate innovation. But we need more policies that really encourage experimentation, innovation and learning, even if they're in some places uh, can reduce short-term productivity. And just as a conclusion, I think managing water and food in the Anthropocene really poses new challenges. There are new disturbance regimes, rapid declines in ecosystem services. It's important to understand that water is not just a commodity, but the whole bloodstream of the biosphere that we're changing at different ways. That agroecosystems generate multiple services, including food, and that cross-scale interactions are very important. And that more focus on fundamental transformations are, uh, are needed. Thank you. Well done. Okay. Okay. Okay, the next speaker is Alex Awiti. And Alex is the uh, director of the East African Institute uh, in Kenya, that's a policy research and think tank. And here is Alex. Thanks, Anne. Um, good afternoon, all. I'm delighted to be here. And uh, I think what I want to talk about, uh, Lina has done a good job at laying the foundation and kind of defining some of the uh, key terms that I'll be using. Uh, so to get this underway. Um, what I'll be talking about is why regime shifts in agroecosystems. Because I think the fundamental shifts in boundary conditions around some of the elements that are critical to generating uh, key services uh, that are critical to sustaining agriculture, which are then linked to livelihood options and opportunities for smallholder rural farmers, which in, 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 in some of the systems are tightly coupled with uh, economic and health outcomes for these societies. Um, so uh, what I think regime shifts are is uh, large and lasting changes in uh, instruction function. And if you look at this from the context of agriculture, the fundamental structure is kind of the landscape configurations, the capability of these soils to uh, produce crops. Uh, and, and, and from a functional point, some of the key things are critical to maintaining uh, la uh, landscape capability. And uh, so one of the emphasis is on sustainable food production uh, uh, systems and recognition uh, of the scarcity of vital resources uh, such as water and, bio and soil biodiversity as well. Uh, so understanding uh, the functioning of agro-systems and, and how the health and performance uh, can be measured and monitored uh, uh, over time uh, and, and managed is critical. So uh, understanding where these, these systems are at any given place 
at any given point in time, is critical to designing management interventions, is critical to galvanizing the necessary social capital, uh, moving institutional capability to managing the system. So uh, my premise is that we need to know where we are in this trajectory in these ecosystems before we can design management options. So I'm going to pre present some examples um, of some of the work that we've done in Western Kenya. And uh, this is the last remnant of the Guinea-Congolian forest, which is the easternmost uh, remnant of the rainforest in, in, in Africa that runs across the, uh, uh, the equatorial zone. And we designed a, a, a chrono sequence basically to understand uh, transformation trajectories from uh, uh, forest systems to uh, agricultural systems in, in two phases. One was 10 years after conversion, and the other one was 25 years after conversion, and kind of tracking significant uh, elements of, this, of these systems in ways that we could measure. Uh, so I won't go into the details of experimental design, but just to uh, go through some of, these, some of these things was to kind of look at uh, critical elements around soil fertility, soil chemical properties, uh, look at water and infiltration uh, uh, capacity, water retention, uh, but also looking at some quick indices for plant primary productivity potential in these systems. As you come from forest soils to 10-year conversions, 25-year conversions, look at how these systems change over time to kind of present a case for evidence for these regime shifts and then how you might manage uh, these these, these regimes. So one of the things that we did was uh, use some really modern techniques that uh, analyzing soil quality, which is using spectral reflectance. And, and what you can see there uh, are, uh, spectral signatures coming out of these different soils. Uh, so what you see there is an albedo, which is uh, reflectance. And the soils that are most reflective are the ones that are old uh, 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 agricultural systems. And the ones that are least reflective are the ones that are still uh, in intact forest soils. And this spectral differentiation begins to give you a sense of how different these soils are. And if you like, uh, it's kind of different regimes that have different capabilities in terms of uh, some of the critical elements. And if you look at this canonical discriminant cluster, they're also very distinct in terms of you can tell the differences apart in this, in, in this very simple diagram. But what's behind those numbers, uh, what, what's behind those figures is actually real, real, real differences in soil quality. Differences in pH that are very critical, difference in soil organic carbon, uh, CN ratios, uh, uh, also uh, soil uh, uh, particle size, you, you look at your silt, clay, and, 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 and sun components. Uh, so again, we'll be, we're seeing huge shifts of differences uh, that are attributable to cultivation, uh, in, in, in smallholder, low-input systems. So you, we're, we're assuming that the forest is the benchmark. So if farmers convert forest soils into agricultural soils, they have some huge opportunity for good crops because the soils are still good. That begins to run down because these uh, low-input systems, they're not putting back much into the soil. It's an export system. The maize stovers are sold to neighbors, uh, and, and these nutrient exports begin to undermine and reduce soil fertility. So you can see that degradation over time. Uh, uh, that is kind of, in, in a qualitative way, some, 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 some semblance of a regime change. Uh, if you look at uh, soil organic carbon regimes, uh, through this, and soil carbon is critical to uh, fundamental soil function. And what we did was look at uh, stable carbon isotope. And these forest systems uh, have a different carbon signal into the soil, which is a C3-based carbon uh, uh, signature. And when you convert these to maize systems, you, you shift the input uh, soil organic uh, uh, process 
into a C4 pathway. And you can actually see uh, those patterns here, that if, if you're looking at time zero since conversion, you have a very high C3 signature, but that begins to decline over time. And that's here in this, uh, 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 in this uh, uh, equation. Uh, so you see very, very, very low input uh, from uh, maze systems. So uh, at the beginning, you have a low fraction of, of C3-based, of C4-based carbon, but the accretion of that carbon into the system over time, and this is a switchover, becomes predominantly a C4-based. But it's at very low levels to sustain meaningful soil capability. But you see a, a very rapid erosion of a C3 carbon signature. Uh, so that farmers are constantly undermining this carbon uh, 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 from the soil. And what we see is actually a different regime in terms of uh, soil processes and soil function. Uh, the other one uh, was an experiment to look at infiltration and water retention uh, in these soils. And, and again, you see different regimes. Uh, forest soils have a, a very high infiltration uh, capacity. Uh, agricultural soils have very low infiltration. Uh, again, you look at uh, these uh, water retention curves, distinctly different, and these are the ag soils. Uh, uh, at, at only at very high pressure do you begin to see some kind of a, 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 a difference in this. And this is actually caused by the fact that the soil structure changes over many, many years of cultivation. So in, in soils that have a, a very good structure, you see this very good differentiation in terms of water retention. And this is critical for crop production. So again, what we're trying to illustrate here is that you're moving from one regime to another with, uh, uh, in, uh, uh, with time since conversion. And because these are low input systems, farmers are constantly undermining and eroding soil capability. Uh, I think this is really what farmers see in the end. That, uh, so what we did was uh, do these 14-day uh, uh, maize uh, uh, bioassays uh, in soils that were drawn from forest, from recent conversions to old conversions, and grew maize crops, plants there for 14 days. And what you could see is a very, very interesting response. When maize plants were grown in soils that were deficient uh, in, in, in critical soil, soil, soil minerals, they put forth more shoot uh, more root into the soil to kind of scrounge for, uh, uh, for, for, uh, for uh, nutrients. And when they were grown in forest soils, uh, the growth vigor was more uh, on the shoot side. So that means that these uh, uh, plants invest more in, uh, in, in above-ground biomass and, and, and you're likely to get a good corn crop after, out of that. So uh, in, if you look at this graphic here, this is an, an old field that has been cultivated for over 25 years. And if you look at the, just the color of the, of, 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 the, of the corn leaf, it's very, it's very different from this that was recently converted. So this is beginning to show some kind of a productivity regime shift as well. So soils that are all conversions are, are, are kind of decline into this uh, low productivity regime, and soils that were recently uh, converted have, have reasonably better capability uh, to provide good yield. Um, so one of the things that we also see is kind of the external uh, uh, impacts of these. Uh, again, once you reduce infiltration capacity, you reduce water retention, uh, this potential to generate more runoff from these landscapes. And this is what we see uh, in most of uh, the lower lake plains. Uh, again, when you convert, when these systems uh, are overgrazed, you move from nearly intact uh, uh, kind of savanna types of systems to uh, these hard, uh, hard setting soils. Uh, in vertisols that are uh, very fragile in the lake plains. And this is kind of a different regime from the previous one. 
And what we see is that this overland flow actually dumps a lot of uh, sediments in the lake. And, and that sedimentation, um, again, with the introduction of the Nile patch, creates anoxic conditions. And has actually changed the, the, uh, uh, the, 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 the limnological structure of the lake and moved the fisheries uh, from the haplochromines to more of a Nile patch based and, 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 uh, and uh, 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 Rastrium boli genti, which is the small fishes. Uh, so again, you begin to see some of these off-site consequences of these regime shifts, and this is the same basin. So uh, as farmers are converting uh, forests to smallholder agricultural systems, they're reducing overall landscape capability for infiltration and water retention and groundwater recharge, and the off-site consequence of that is that you have more uh, erosion in the lake plains because there's very little infiltration, more flooding, and more sediments getting washed into the lake, and that sedimentation changes uh, the limnological structure of the lake. It's more of the eutrophication side of things. So you're moving from uh, 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 from freshwater lakes uh, uh, that are less polluted to more eutrophic uh, systems uh, that are not good for fisheries. And again, has significant consequences, as, as Doug is going to talk about, on livelihoods and, 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 and economies of lakeshore communities. Uh, so one of the other things that we've tried to do over the years is also to look at an approach for building uh, agroecosystem resilience, kind of to prevent these regime shifts. And one of the uh, methods, the tools that has been available in uh, my old organization, the Wild Agroforestry Center, was trying to do was implementation of agroforestry, promoting agroforestry practices, which again begin to be build soil organic uh, capital, uh, uh, begin to uh, improve infiltration capability, and has a potential to kind of renew these soils over time. Uh, the, the only constraint is how do you then negotiate with farmers to get into these intercropped systems, because they're very labor intensive, there's opportunity cost in many dimensions. So again, you begin to kind of think about what are the trade-offs in, in terms of moving these systems, because the easier thing to do is to make fertilizers available. And, and these governments can do it and promote better land management practices, et cetera. But these are more labor-intensive things, so you're kind of constantly negotiating with farmers. They're labor-constrained. Most of these uh, agricultural systems, as you know, are run by women because the men are off in the cities trying to find a job and, and bring remittances back to the village. So you find, in, in most cases, it's a woman and the kids, and the kids have to go to school or hide goats. So it, it's, it's a very constrained system. Uh, but th these have shown excellent signs uh, uh, and potential to, to improve soil productivity, as you can see from, uh, uh, from this slide. What happened? Okay, so uh, here are some, some examples in terms of looking at maize yield in these systems that are agroforestry systems. I won't go into the details, uh, but it just shows uh, uh, very significant gains in soil organic matter. Uh, in, in different agroforestry interventions. Uh, that f these, these, these are experiments from farmers' fields, and uh, they show very good, very good potential to, to change the systems. Uh, I think what I want to go back to is this graphic, which actually shows how you can potentially reverse that decline trajectory. Uh, from uh, time since conversion, you're looking at relative soil organic carbon uh, in these production systems, where the decline over time, but through in agroforestry systems, you can actually begin to change those uh, using different interventions. So planted fallows, planted fallows with shaded crops, agroforestry with crop, with crop cover, no-till, residue and mulch. Some of the things that we've been seeing from farmers here in Nebraska actually have a potential to change the systems. So you can actually reverse these regime shifts. There's an investment cost to it, there are trade-offs, uh, there are constraints in this, in, in, in the, in the smallholder systems. But again, the, that's what it is. It's kind of demonstrate that 
these systems can actually be recovered, but it's also easy to maintain them in these very low production systems over a very long time, and they can be very resilient in their suboptimal state. Uh, so what we're trying to do with this is kind of demonstrate that uh, there's a potential, but what I want to show with these uh, examples is that to manage agricultural systems for resilience, we've got to know, at least in some indicative way, what we might measure. And I think things that are easy to measure, so organic carbon potential, for instance, we've advanced the use of, of uh, reflectance spectroscopy, which can give you uh, some very quick measurements of up to 11 critical soil properties, uh, a one pass, and using uh, uh, some of those methods that I showed, you can actually tell soils uh, one from the other. Uh, depending on, uh, uh, on, on, on soil organic carbon, which is the most critical uh, signature for that. So can we move towards diagnostic indicators for soil condition, for instance, so that you can actually diagnose over time what regimes kind of prevail uh, 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 across the population of, of, of agricultural fields? Uh, the other one is uh, using hydraulic properties, water retention. We, we saw those curves are very distinct in old systems and, and newly converted systems. Uh, we can then build uh, strategic libraries of spectral baselines across these landscapes. Uh, in most of Africa, in most of these smallholder landscapes, we always have some forest or some uh, uh, intact grassland uh, or uh, uh, farm boundaries that are, that are intact. So we can use those as benchmarks to begin to look at what the management interventions would be and what standards you ought to manage for at those landscape scales. Because again, uh, uh, what you want to do is to restore these landscapes to their capability given those agroecosystems and given the climate, uh, 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 soil condition, soil catena. So you don't want to create a new system, but you want to manage the systems to their optimal capability. So using a local reference benchmark is critical for doing that. Uh, so one of the things that I think would be critical to to, to think about in terms of managing the systems for resilience is to look at how do we establish some optimal or, or allowable ranges for managing these systems? What, what is this safe, kind of safe play zone within these systems? Uh, what are the ranges of soil organic carbon? What are the infiltration capabilities that we think we can live within that farmers can, within their resources, kind of manage within? And then use those as a basis for monitoring and building a, 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 a diagnosis around. Uh, so, again, uh, some of the essential, th this would be essential ingredients for building a monitoring system. And how can we work with farmers uh, in very simple ways to, to anticipate some of these uh, 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 undesirable kind of transitions from, from one system, from one regime to another? And, 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 and as Crystal uh, mentioned in the morning, uh, can we then use some capability of uh, uh, social capital, uh, institutional mechanisms and incentives to help farmers kind of manage their, their landscapes within these optimal allowable ranges uh, and, and using site indices to basically signpost uh, uh, some of these uh, processes and, and, and to figure out whether farmers are managing in optimal ways that can preserve some of the most critical uh, elements of these systems, which is crop productivity. But as I said, crop productivity is tightly coupled with uh, food security, with nutrition, with income. So again, uh, it's almost like uh, uh, killing one, one bird with uh, uh, killing several birds with one stone, uh, if you like. Uh, because in these smallholder systems, uh, farmers are cash-strapped. 
this market is uh, uh, completely dysfunctional. So most of the food that is produced is consumed at a household level. So to get farmers to produce at a surplus, you have to inject a lot of energy into these systems. So that's fertilizer, that's some bit of mechanization, market incentives, uh, inputs to, uh, to get seed. So you, you get trapped into these kind of uh, 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 institutional uh, uh, socioeconomic constraints that are outside uh, the ecological system that you're trying to manage. But how do we speak with policymakers to understand that these systems are actually coupled, that the social dimensions are critical to improving the ecological dimensions, and these things are codependent. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. Our next speaker is Doug Beard. He's the Chief National Climate Change and Wildlife Science Center um, of the Wildlife Science Center of the USGS. Doug. Great, thank you. Um, uh, how do I make the slides go? Yeah, there we go. So uh, fair truth and disclosure, I'm a bit of a fish out of water. Um, I'm a fisheries biologist by trade and training, and I think about food from the fish aspect. Um, interesting to me, after a day and a half, this may be the first mention of fish as something people actually eat and consume. Uh, and it's an important part of uh, the food, food sources around the world. I was once asked in a job interview, what was my passion in life, and I answered fish. I didn't get the job, so that's just a lesson for those of you that are, are fairly honest about um, what drives you. Um, so when we think about, or when I think about sort of the food system, I think broader than just sort of the traditional agriculture. Um, I think a lot about how do we have an integrated food system that comes from a variety of sources, including these very critical inland aquatic systems. And so as we think about um, what we want from our systems. We think about what, what, what are the important factors that we're looking for in resilience or other mechanisms. And in fact, a lot of people would view that the slide on, on, I guess it's on your lower right-hand side, is a horrible flooding incident um, that wiped out crops and, and farmland. But in fact, this is a natural part of a system in which rice beds are flooded, water comes in, fish are produced, Farmers get rice. It's just part of a natural system that's very, very important. In the upper right-hand uh, part is actually an overview of Lake Victoria, and I think Alex did a great job of explaining the situation that's going on there, and I won't, I won't belabor that. I'll talk a little bit more about some statistics around Lake Victoria and, and try to illustrate how critical that is as a food source. Um, and we've heard mention of the word ecosystem services, and let me talk about what those really are and what we, we think of them from coming from inland systems. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit on a lot of them, but talk mainly about one, and that's food production in terms of fish production. But there are a lot of things we want. Of course, in North America, um, for those of you that all fish, recreational participation, or we boat or we swim, in North America, we use water systems to do that activity. Fishing alone generates millions of dollars a year within North America to the economy, and it's quite critical to what what we value here in, the, in this part of the world. Um, similarly, uh, when we go outside of this part of the world and we get off into the developed world, this becomes more of a food issue. It becomes more of production of fish um, that, that people need 
for not only their human nutrition, but their livelihoods. In fact, um, one thing that I won't talk much about today, but the one thing that is often thought about as agriculture is aquaculture. Uh, aquaculture is rapidly growing globally. Uh, I saw a talk a couple years ago uh, from a gentleman from China in which they're actually taking natural waterways and converting them into aquaculture systems. So they're getting rid of the natural fish fauna that are there, per turning them into Asian carp production. I know that may shock people in North America, but Asian carp are actually native to China, so they, and they do eat them. Um, and they're basically raising, taking these natural waterways and using them to produce fish, and fish at high numbers. And so these are critically important to, to many people throughout the world. Um, and I'm going to focus mainly on inland fisheries uh, as, as, a, as a really important service that are, that are uh, provided by resilient aquatic systems. And here's some examples. There's some, some netters from uh, uh, Lake Victoria. There's some traditional fishing that's been done on the, on the Mekong River. These little guys with the, the boat here, the silver boat, is actually Sri Lanka. There are these little lakes that they go and harvest small fish out of. And a lot of these fish never reach global markets. In fact, on the inland side of things, it's fairly rare that they go into a global marketplace. They're very hard to value in traditional economic sense. Um, there's just not a market out there that someone can go and say these things are worth $10 a pound or $12 a pound. Much different than the tuna situation, which we all we, we hear a lot about all the time on these rac record fish uh, that are brought to Tokyo and sold for millions of dollars. That's a much different animal when we, we think about inland fish. So just how important are, are, are these fish to human nutrition or, or the food supply? Well, this, is, uh, this slide's a bit out of date. Um, I just saw the, the latest numbers this morning, actually. But we get about 7.8 million, uh, or I mean about 10.2 million tons in 2008. Every year, the catch from inland situations has gone, gone up. Um, it grows on the order of 2 to 3% per year. And almost all the production is from developing countries. The thing that's missing from these estimates, and, and continues to be missing largely, is, uh, uh, is the recreational side of, of the catch. And in fact, if we, if we could actually figure that out, these numbers would probably double or triple. And at least where I grew up, we ate the fish that we caught recreationally. Um, did we need to eat them? No. But did we like to eat them? Yes. Um, and so they do provide a critical and other important part of, of the diet, um, not only for people in developing countries, but those of us in the developed world. Uh, just a little bit um, on how critically important these uh, animals are to human nutrition. And I think we need to think of food beyond just sort of kilocalories. Um, there's a lot of great work been done uh, by a guy by the name of Michael Crawford. He's a he's a works I think at the London University of London or so, somewhere in London on the evolution of humans. And what he's really shown fairly effectively, at least for me as a fish biologist, is a critical role that the omega-3 fatty acids plays in development of the human brain. In fact, he'll make a, if he was here, he'd make a very convincing argument that humans evolved on the coastlines, not in the savannas because of the critical dependence on omega-3s that you can only get from basically aquatic animals. And so it's not just as simple as, wow, we're not going to have these fish, so we'll just produce corn or, or beef or, or rice to replace them. Indeed, we, we think that the, the nutrition that we get beyond kilocalories is, is really critically important to the entire 
uh, human, human well-being, as it were. The, th the key thing to note on this is that it's developing countries that really were the bulk of it, and, and uh, where bulk of this uh, inland capture fisheries is important to the food food supply, and really Southeast Asia is the heart of, heart of all of this. Um, an interesting question we had right before lunch was, well, maybe we'll just, these folks will just switch over to beef or something if we, if we don't have fish. Well, the fact of the matter is culturally, it's also a cultural thing. And let's think about Japan. The Japanese are a rich country. They certainly can afford to eat pigs and beef and chicken monetarily, not an issue. Yet, culturally, they subsist on fish. They enjoy fish. It's a cultural thing. And so just making a switch over to some other sort of food source isn't as easy as, well, it's now available and we can afford it. There's also a cultural aspect that I think we need to really think about when we think about how we, we uh, deal with food systems. A little bit about the critical importance of this in terms of employment. And uh, just... The number of jobs that are produced is uh, something on the order of 60,000 globally, and the, 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 or 60,000, 60, 60 million. Um, and a critical key component, which sounds very similar to traditional agriculture, this is a woman-dominated enterprise largely. So you're talking about majority employment for women, uh, especially in developed countries, um, either in not so much in the actual fishing part of fishing out on the water, but in terms of the post-production processes. So when the fish come on shore, shore the cleaning, the marketing, the, the selling, that's where there's a lot of engagement. So it really is beyond just food, it's, it's jobs, and it's critical jobs in areas that don't have, have lots of them. And so one of the things a little cabal of us has been uh, fish folk, and you see some of the names on the bottom here, um, Devin Bartley from FAO and Simon Fungi Smith from FAO. We've been trying to figure out how do we get sort of the discussion as food is a vital component of the food supply into actually realistic trade-offs on how we choose to manage systems, whether they be aquatic systems, terrestrial systems, or something like that, because there is a cost. If we decide that we're going to produce more corn or we're going to take water to produce more something, there's going to be some impact somewhere else. It's, it's a zero-sum game with water. I mean, it's finite. Um, and so as we move this around, at some point, we have to decide what we really want and what's more important to us in our food systems. So I did some back-of-the-envelope uh, calculations, which are yeah, actually quite dangerous to do, but I did them anyway. Um, and what I, what I basically did was take some data that we've been collecting on sort of wild fish produce, and this is wild capture from some systems that we have data on from around the world, and then sort of tried to figure out what it would take just in terms of kilocalories. This is not in terms of nutrition. Kilocalories it would take in tonnage to replace the wild fish capture. This is above and beyond what we already produce. This is not sort of just a little bit more. This is like we'd have to totally replace that. So if we look at some of these systems, um, the Black Voltas in Africa, Madeira is actually a huge tributary of the Amazon. It's, it's, a, it's a very large river. Um, and the Mekong, which is really the heart of, heart of inland fish production. And in fact, if we start thinking about how much kilocalories or tons we need to replace these things, certainly beef is probably the one that you'd have the least amount of sort of 
more tons to produce, but that's because it has a calorie density that's somewhat similar to fish. Remember, calories from fish are, calorie, fish are very high calorie density things to eat, um, especially fatty fish. I mean, you, you get a lot of energy per, per, per gram. Um, and that's fairly similar with beef. But when you, you start going down the, the way to corn, um, that's actually a fairly nutrient, not, not as nutrient dense, um, you actually almost have to have twice as many tons of corn produced as you do wild fish. Now that's, that's fairly alarming to me in terms of, you know, sort of the magnitude of the replacement cost. And I actually also did this as a percent of yearly discharge. And um, for, for sort of rivers that don't produce a lot of fish, and I'm going to talk about that just in a minute here. Um, so the percent of water we'd have to take and basically just take it out of the river and put it onto fields or into beef um, it's fairly low in some of these waters. But when you start thinking about the Mekong, so if you're going to redirect water from the Mekong away from inland fisheries and put it into, into corn, um, that can be up to 17% to produce the same amount of corn. So is that a decision you're willing to make? I mean, that, that's, a you know, that's a realistic choice that people should be willing to face when they decide, boy, we're not going to use inland fish as a food source anymore. We're going to turn it over to corn, and so we're making a decision that 17% of the water or the discharge of the Mekong yearly will go on to cornfields. That may be a fair choice. Those choices are made every day in America. We make them all the time, and um, hopefully we make them with informed data so that we really do know what our, our true trade-offs are in terms of making these decisions. I want to add one word of caution. The inland fisheries data is notoriously horrible. Notoriously horrible. Is, even FAO in the report says inland fisheries data is bad. Because why is that? They're local markets. Many of these fish, just like small-scale farmers, are consumed by the family or bartered or sold very locally to the neighbors. They rarely leave and go off into the global marketplace um, where they can be tracked. And so when we get better data on things, like we have from Thailand and Bangladesh, and we actually have data from how much fish people consume, the official reported numbers sometimes are on the order of one half of what we actually think gets eaten or out of these systems to up to a, only a third. So there's some real issues here. So we think the magnitude of this problem is fairly large. I'm not going to talk much about Lake Victoria because I thought Alex did a really great um, overview of this. Um, just add a few statistics here. Uh, the Lake Victoria Fisheries Commission, I got a lot of this from Oliver Macombo uh, that works on, on Lake Victoria fisheries, and it's already gone through a number of regime shifts, which you mentioned. Traditionally, a haplochromine uh, cichlid fishery. Years ago, a decision was made to stock Nile perch in there to create a fishery. A mild perch is a large fish. Um, they actually is one of the few inland fish that does hit the global market, and most of it's exported to Europe. Um, it produces jobs locally in terms of production and, and, and fishing itself. Um, and now with the rapid change over in the land basin, one asks the question, what's the next regime here? Um, is it going to shift over to Daga, which was mentioned, the, the small little fish that, that is now seems to be more and more dominant in the catch? That fish is not exportable. It's consumed locally, um, but largely it's, it's, it's not something that's going to generate a huge income. The Lake Victoria fishery itself supports something like up to 3 million people. Uh, value U.S. dollars from a few years ago is between 350, 350 to 400 million annually. It's not an inconsequential source of income 
and jobs for people in this part of the world. Um, so let me change a little bit, and I, I'm going to view these things a little bit different than I saw some speakers yesterday view these things. Um, those of us from the fisheries, the tried and true, deep in the mud fish folk community view a lot of what comes next as what we call threats. Um, and that may be because we come from a conservation perspective or from a fish food production perspective. Um, but that's just our nature of how we think about this. Other speakers, and I, I saw one yesterday now when we get to the hydro part, view that as opportunity. So it's interesting to me to see what part of the world you come from and your, your wave of thinking and how you, how you view these sorts of opportunities. We know that there are huge parts of the world that have both economic and just plain water scarcity. Um, uh, whether it's because they have poor infrastructure um, or because like in North America, the Southwest of North America, we have a desert, there just isn't, there are just problems with water. So water's unequally distributed around, around the planet. Um, and certainly North America is gonna face that, I think, sooner rather than later. Um, we know that climate drivers are gonna further exasperate this. I thought Rosina did a great job yesterday of talking about climate and a climate driver. Um, a lot of places, it looks a lot like sort of the drier place, the dry places are gonna get drier, the wet places may get wetter, but the wet, the precipitation will be more uh, spotty, as it were. So it's, it's not going to be sort of, it'd be more big events, large events, and could in fact cause more flooding. Um, and this, this sort of stuff becomes uh, more of an issue as we, we, we think about it in the future. And so we, you know, we do need to think about what are the systems we want in agriculture and food in the future, and how is that integrated across a number of different food producing um, areas. So this is the graph that was shown yesterday and which was seen as sort of an opportunity. Um, but the uh, siting of hydropower and dams has huge implications for fish production and the type of fish you want. Uh, we've had these issues in, in North America on, on a much smaller scale. Some of our largest migratory inland fishes, sturgeons, uh, is a classic example from this part of the world. We've had issues with... Um, sort of uh, long-term sustainability of these creatures because they need long distances to migrate, they spawn a long way from where they live, and these things have been shut off. And so the question for us is, how do we deal with that? So as we start to put in dams around the world, we do need to think about what are the implications for fish as a food um, production. And in fact, we know um, combining that with sort of the rapid increase in you know, the traditional agriculture, uh, we, we know that land has changed rapidly um, within the last three, four hundred years, will continue to change rapidly. We, we're going to have impacts. So this is just back to the Mekong. And all these little black dots that you see are registered water control structures of one sort or of another. And these aren't all giant dams. These are small little check dams and that. A lot of it for rice production. Um, and so when you think about putting in things like the Zyberi Jam in, in Laos or the, the, the bigger dams upstream that have been proposed in China, um, how is that going to affect the production areas? And a lot of the production actually comes from sort of flooded areas, which are critical, and also sort of the, just the, the near shore riparian zone. So floods are actually really, really critical to how, how they get fish in this area. So 
In that part of the world, the debate is, do we electrify the rural poor and produce income and that? And if so, how are we going to replace potential fish production with other food sources? I think some of the work that's been done by a colleague of mine, Ian Kauk, suggests that up to a, mi a million tons of fish could be lost for, for some of these dams. Whoa. I knew that the fish people, you know, the fish, whoa, that's enough for the fish guy. Get him off of here. We've heard enough about fish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, uh, and, and this is just a picture from Lake Victoria, and I won't dwell on this, but in fact, it actually illustrates the problem that's going on there. Uh, algal blooms that never used to appear um, because of the changeover in, 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 in agriculture now are appearing. And that clearly is going to have effects not only on production of, of Nile perch, but also the haplochromines and other animals. So you've seen this slide. What, what, what are the choices we face? My view of resilient food systems is they need to be integrated. And they need to come from, food needs to come from a variety of sources. And we need to recognize that when we make a decision on, on moving water from one place to another, it's going to impact something. It, it's not... It, we may get more food of one sort, but we probably are having an impact of food on some other sort. So um, I highly recommend this part of the world. This is the Mekong River. This is one of the highlights of my life. Uh, this is Laos, uh, uh, the capital of Vientiane. These are two traditional uh, fishers, um, very low carbon intensive sport there. Uh, get a canoe, you paddle it out there, you put a net in, and you lift it every day and see what you get. And we would sit uh, on the banks of the Mekong, watch the sun go down, that's Thailand across the way there, uh, watch these guys pull their nets up every day, drink beer lao, um, which is an interesting concoction uh, of beer, and, uh, uh, and just to really enjoy uh, being somewhere that I always wanted to go um, because of its importance to um, the world in terms of fish production. So thank you very much. Our next speaker is Marty Andres. He's the Associate Professor at the School of Human Evolution and Social Change and at the School of Sustainability. Marty? Thanks to my table of co-conspirators for giving me a hand. I hope you've um, Recaffeinated. This is the toughest time of day. Lunch has sunk in. Your bodies are digesting. You can barely stay awake. So I'll do my best to uh, keep us going. Uh, I just wanted to say uh, how much I've enjoyed being here. I typically don't look at agriculture through this particular lens of intensive mechanized agriculture. And I think you'll see that during my presentation. So I've expanded the way I look at water for food issues. Uh, today, I'm going to share with you some work I'm doing in, um, oh, there it is, <clears throat> uh, in Nepal that looks more at the small-scale social attributes of the water for food problem. So I'd like to start this talk with this, um, this little image here from a recent film. Has anybody seen this film? came out on NPR last year, Summer Pasture. has a very provocative subtitle, uh, Change is Coming to the High Grasslands of Tibet. We also have a project uh, at ASU looking at some of the changes that are occurring in these pasture systems. And this is very, very provocative. Everybody knows about Tibet. It's very exciting. But what they don't know is that, in fact, 
much less exciting in irrigated agriculture. I don't think you could make a movie about this. Change is coming to irrigated agriculture in Nepal. Probably wouldn't be as uh, uh, a blockbuster for any stretch of the imagination. But these are numbers that you probably are all familiar with. So irrigated agriculture consumes 70% of global developed water supplies, produces a lot of food on a little bit of land, and the thing I'm going to talk about today that's very important is that uh, the bulk of agricultural activity agri happens on very small plots, less than two hectares. 90% of the farms worldwide are less than two hectares, and this supports uh, a majority of the world's uh, poorest people. So it's an important part of the food story. Uh, this comes from an Indian newspaper that tells a story about what's happening in terms of the distribution of rainfall in space and time. So you can see at the bottom in 2009, the national average of rainfall was 23% below normal. In the dark blue areas, it was 23 to 30% above normal. So if you've got that big of an area in a place as big as India that's 20 to 30% above normal, and the national average is 20 to 30% below, you know that somewhere is way below average. So you've got very wet and very dry conditions that are uh, spaced temporally and spatially. So what are these farmers in these areas facing? Well, we've heard a lot about climate change. They're uh, facing a general reduction in water availability. Things are drying out. They have increased variability, just like in those blue regions. Too much water, right? This conference is too wet, too dry, too hot. They've got it all. Too dry, too wet too hot, and of course, we also have too late. So I'll add that little subtitle to the conference. Too hot, too dry, too wet, or too late. So you, agriculture is all about getting everything together the right place at the right time. So they're facing these very difficult challenges. Not only that, globalization is occurring economically as well. These people are facing all sorts of shocks to the social fabric that they rely upon to make their systems work. New technology, complex market interactions, that they have not experienced before. So I'd like to suggest that, uh, as Alex said earlier, and we've heard several times in the conference, that managing food globally is going to take a multi-level governance regimes, local, regional, national level governance to make these systems uh, resilient, robust, and sustainable. <clears throat> I've seen a lot of really cool images like this uh, during the conference. I'll just show you one more here. Uh, this is a story. This is. Uh, uh, UNFAO data, very old at this point, but this just shows you where agriculture is going to be challenged. The redder it is, the lower the expect, or the, the bigger drop in expected agricultural output. Uh, and I've just shown you some pins here uh, showing where our research is. Of course, Arizona and Phoenix, the central Phoenix Basin, as some of you know, we grow cotton there. Cotton has been grown in the Phoenix Basin for the past 1,500 years. Uh, very interesting story. Why the hell you'd grow cotton in such a dry place? Well, it turns out it works pretty well. But we are interested in how that works. But we also are working in Colombia, India, Nepal, and Thailand on this particular project. Uh, the case study I'm going to show you today comes from work we're doing in Nepal and Colombia. So the, the, what organizes our research, the kind of questions we ask is, first, we believe that the adaptive capacity of these small-scale social ecological systems is fundamentally important for food security at the global scale. We're not going to get center pivot kind of irrigation systems working, highly mechanized agriculture in these places for any, in any time soon. So I think uh, understanding how they work and promoting how they work is going to be important for at least half the world's population. 
Uh, as I said earlier, it's important to link these local governance systems to multi-level governance structures so that these systems can deal with the shocks that they're facing. And uh, many of you know firsthand about these shocks. So what we try to do is we try to develop an understanding of the system level dynamics that is generated by individual decision making at the, at the plot level, how that maps up into the village level, which then enables these systems to function. And then secondly, how individual decisions are affected by exogenous drivers. Remember I said there are two things happening here, global climate change and global social and economic change. So these populations are going to be impacted by those two things. We're trying to understand how those two things interact with this work that we're doing. We rely on a, a very well-developed uh, uh, institutional analysis and development framework that really tries to understand how the biophysical context, the attributes of the community, and the rules in use, particular uh, rules in use in a particular region come together. Nebraska is, in fact, very interesting. One of the key features that I've come to appreciate in the past couple of days here are the sand hills. We heard about it this morning. You've got these uh, resource development uh, governance structures that aren't aren't uh, in every state. In every, so you've got your own kind of rules and use, local governance structures. And of course, uh, you've got particular people here that make different decisions than people in, say, Phoenix would make. So we try to understand how those three things come together to generate what we call an action situation. An action situation I'll be talking about today is a season of irrigated agriculture. Okay? Um, uh, and the way we try to organize our research is to look at many, many case studies from around the world. That's why we have these pinpricks in all these different places. We look at, we have about 100 cases in Nepal, two or 300 cases in other areas in India and forestry. We try to compare how these cases stack up against one another. We try to extract general themes. What are the key drivers in these systems? And then based on those themes, we develop models, dynamic models. We heard a little bit about modeling at lunch yesterday and in other talks. Those models help us formalize those ideas to see which of those themes are most important. Sometimes those, those uh, uh, raise new questions that I'll illustrate today that you see these little red feedbacks from the dynamic modeling goes back to the case studies and say, what? why are they doing this? The model says this, but they're doing this. What's going on? What are we missing? So it gives us kind of an interesting lens to try to understand what's going on on the ground. Then often the dynamic modeling says, oh, but you're assuming this about what humans do, what kind of decisions they make. Then we go to the human subject experiments to say, let's see what decisions humans really make. So <clears throat> in the remainder of the talk, I'm going to give you a little world tour of uh, this, this dynamic modeling component and the human subject experiments. And hopefully, this whole thing taken together, we hope that we're going to be able to generate new knowledge and outreach uh, for local communities and for policy practitioners. And I, I do hope that we're going to be able to start doing some of this kind of work right here in Nebraska. <clears throat> OK. so. What I'm going to do, the two examples I'm going to show you is, in fact, the uh, dynamic uh, modeling analysis of a pump, the pump irrigation system in Nepal, which is going to motivate human subject experiments and collective action that we do at the University in Arizona, uh, at Arizona State, and uh, in Colombia, which then hopefully uh, is going to motivate the next phase of research, which I'll chat a little bit about. <clears throat> That's the Pumper River. You can see, many of you have seen these people are interested in agriculture in South Asia uh, and Southeast Asia, these incredibly steep terrains. Any of you have traveled in China, you know that the kind of agriculture that they're doing there is vastly different than what, what they're doing here. Uh, this gives you a picture of what's going on in the Pumper system. So what we did is we formalized this. We made a, a schematic, like we, I'm a mathematician. First I have an engineering degree, then a mathematics PhD, so I can't help but make pictures like this and make models. 
Uh, so what we did is we made this picture, and you can see that <clears throat> what we've got is about 120 households. Here's the Pumper River, so you're looking upstream in the picture behind. Uh, they have headworks here that draw water into this region. Uh, it's about 120 households, maybe a couple hundred hectares. Um, there are six regions with historical water priorities. It's kind of a first-in-time, first-in-right uh, traditional uh, treatment of water seniority here uh, with the seniority as numbered. And um, you see that the big problem they have is here's the flow in the river. There's a headgate constraint. They can't get any more water. In fact, right around the corner this way, there's a, there's a tunnel that they've had to dig through a mountainside to get the water across this little bit here. So they, they don't have water when they most need it. This green band here is the depth. They have to keep the water in their rice paddies for a successful rice crop. You can see it's quite a wide band. The, the red is optimal. We've heard a lot about, a lot about optimizing building plants, building uh, your infrastructure systems to achieve that optimum. But as long as you stay within that green band, you're going to get a successful crop. But you can see they need the most water when there's the least of it. So right here is the most difficult coordination problem that they face early in the season, just before the monsoons come. They've got to, they have to put their small rice plants through the nursery, nursery phase, get the small little nurse plants, then transplant them into the big patties. That's the most critical phase of the process. So what we were interested in doing is understanding how this community could cope with water scarcity. They're doing fine. They've done fine for thousands of years in a particular set of disturbance regimes. They, they, they know how to deal with certain kinds of disturbances very, very well. Now that climate is changing and the socioeconomic context is changing, can they adapt? That was our question. They, they use a pretty complex, what we call an adaptive governance regime. They have four different ways that they manage water. If there's lots of water, they just deliver water. Uh, they open all the, the valves up and all the areas get water uh, as much as they want. As water scarcity increases, they shift to a sequential rotation. Region one gets all of its water. Then region two gets all of its water, so on and so forth. Anything that you know about, if any of you know anything about Spanish, the, acequia, the, the systems in Spain, um, They'll have, that would be called a turno system in Valencia. They also use a tanda system, which takes turns based on time. So uh, when water becomes really scarce, then they use a 12 or 24-hour rotation. Uh, uh, region 1 gets 12 hours. Region 2 gets 12 hours. Around the way, Region 6 gets 12 hours. And Region 1 gets 12 hours, so on and so forth. So it's a time, uh, it's a time <clears throat> distribution. You can see the funny picture there. Uh, what I've done is I've blown up the... the the early part of the previous slide, so you can see what goes on. So suppose this is your actual depth in your paddy. If you're below, if you're outside the gray area, you get a drought, and we integrate that up. The area that you spend out there is the total deficit times the time, the total volume of water that you're in de deficit, that's a drought. And then if you're above that, you get a flood, which you also uh, damage your crop. So you add up the total time that you're outside of that band, and then we, we um, discount your crop by a certain amount, okay? So <clears throat> um, this is the summary of the model we developed. We developed a dynamical systems model that keeps track of water, valves, evapotranspiration, the whole nine yards, pretty simple. Um, but uh, this is the big story that comes out of the model. So this tells you how each of those different um, strategies perform. So the top one here, you can see the green line, that's the open flow regime. So I'm going to compare the open flow regime for you folks over there. Let's see if I can aim this very sensitive. Along the floor, up there. Did I get it? No, it's too hard. Yep, doesn't seem to work. So looking at the green curve here, 
That's the performance of the system if you do open flow. So as long as you uh, remain up here in terms of mean, mean river discharge, uh, from 100 down to 50, the green, the green strategy works fine. Just open flow. Everybody's fine. But once the river uh, flow discharge rate flows, uh, falls between 100% of normal, we just we rescaled everything to 100%, you see the yield drops off precipitously because you can't, no one gets enough water to have a decent crop in their field. They can't get through the transplantation phase. So <clears throat> the, other, uh, the other curves illustrate the performance of the other, different, the other rotation strategies. You'll see here that you have the sequential and what we call optimized sequential. Don't worry about the optimized sequential. That's just different levels of how well the farmers can, can measure things and time things in the model. You'll see that if they use one of those strategies up here, they don't perform well as well as open flow. So they wouldn't use those. But when the river discharge gets to there, if they switch from open flow to these discharge strategies, they can, in fact, prevent a catastrophic loss. So their yield drops from 100% to 50. And that's a hell of a lot better than zero. So in that sense, they increase the robustness of the system, the capacity of the system to deal with water scarcity. And then each time it goes down, you can see that there's these sort of minimum thresholds at which you need to provide water. That's why you get that stair-step structure. So, they, uh, they can improve their capacity to deal with water scarcity by changing their management regime. And in fact, that's exactly what they do. So the model supports the way they use their, uh, their institutions. Uh, it might seem striking to you that you'd have to lose 50% of your water discharge before you have a problem. Or would they ever experience such a thing? They do. They're very, very variable water regimes. But what's more striking is this picture over here. We also study how a shift in the monsoon, if the monsoon comes later, what that does. Okay, so there's a different kind of water scarcity. Water, you know, as you well know, uh, in farming, uh, water scarcity is all about when, not how much. So here, uh, this is how many days late the monsoon comes. So they can stand 25 days, and then 30, 35 days they have to switch, and then things drop off. Uh, one of my colleagues in Pakistan I work with who works on spate irrigation uh, did inform me that the monsoons arrived 30 days late in Pakistan last year. So these, uh, these are very real patterns that we're starting to observe. But what really puzzled us is the model, never, the model never suggested that you should ever use 12 and 24. So you see the 12 and 24, the solid red. And I apologize to you over there if you can see the solid red and the dashed purple. Those are always lower than everything else. You'd never use them. They, they have poorer performance than any other strategy that you might adopt, so you wouldn't expect them to see that. So this is an example of the feedback between modeling and the case study. So our, one of our colleagues who's a co-author on this paper is Nepalese, did field work at this site and interviewed the farmers. So I said, Ashok, you've got to call these guys back. He was with us in Arizona at the time and say, when, when do you use 12 and 24-hour rotations? Because the model says they should never do it. Well, sure enough, in normal conditions, they never do. They only use 12 and 24-hour rotations when they get a wash out of the head gain infrastructure. Behind this picture, you can't see it, there's a big lump of rocks here. This is called a Gabion box structure for those of you who study these types of irrigation systems. So the people get together and they pile a bunch of big boulders and cover it in essentially chicken wire and put it in the river. Well, they don't. <laughs> they build it in the river. That's their diversion structure. Well, guess what? When they least need the water, the monsoons and this, the melt is in full swing, and those things routinely get washed out. So they have to mobilize labor and fix it. When that happens, it turns out that they use 12 and 24-hour rotations basically to make, uh, to, to cut the story short, a lot of subtle, fun details, to make a bad situation reasonably equitable. Okay? So in fact, we did the model, and it predicted that's exactly what they should do. So we were pretty confident with the model. 
So what did we learn? Adaptive institutions, changing the rules as you go, can vastly improve the robustness of the system, and we observe this in all sorts of these kinds of systems around the world. But it turns out, and I don't have time to go into it here, I'd love to talk about it, that these systems become very high, highly tuned to the local context. You can't lift up these governance structures and put them somewhere else and hope for them to work. They are very tightly coupled with the local biophysical context, and uh, that makes them, in some sense, fragile when that starts to change. So the second thing is, is I have assumed in the model that all the individuals that are participating are cooperating happily. Well, in most of these systems, uh, as we well know, that's not always the case. People don't cooperate. Sometimes self-interest trumps what's good for the collective group. And of course, what's the collective action they have to deal with here? They have to build and maintain that infrastructure and allocate water. So the next question is, now we're going from modeling. We went modeling back to case study, back to modeling, and we're happy. Now we're going to go to experiments. So we have a lab uh, at Arizona State University where we do a lot of uh, experiments. There's been a lot of growth in this area of experimental economics recently where they actually have people play games, do activities, and they discover all sorts of fun things about what motivates human decisions. So we do the same thing. But what our interest is in translating the, oops, translating our model system, our model social ecological system into an experiment. So you, what you see is the panel here is the, the game that the five players see on their computer screen. So this is a real-time game. Water flows from this box over here down this canal. The players have upstream, downstream asymmetry just like the real system. And they have to build the infrastructure each round. Each round this thing, the performance degrades by 25%. So that's equivalent to the community getting together and cleaning out the canals and maintaining the system. Each player is shown their position with the, with the color. Green here, this would be player A. Player C's gate is open, and then players D and E can see that C is taking water because the width of that blue line tells the players how much water uh, is available in the canal. So when, uh, when we run this experiment, we, we basically find that people are really good at playing this game. They can solve this two-stage dilemma. They get together, they build the canal, they allocate water very well. And uh, we've run this with lots and lots of people. Now, this is in a stable environment. And it turns out that they'll even tolerate some inequality. Remember the 12 and 24 hour rotations I said had to deal with equality. Well, it turns out the students will deal with equality, inequality to some extent. The folks downstream never get as much water as the folks upstream. The folks downstream tend not to invest as much either. So they kind of come to a balance where it's fair. Fairness is not equality in these systems. As long as there's some kind of congruence between what you're contributing and what you're getting, people are fairly happy. Simple question, how robust is cooperation? Because when we make the system more variable, it's going to challenge the process, so we thought. So we replaced a level, um, level uh, amount of uh, water or, or decay in the infrastructure and a level amount of water with these crazy, um, crazy variable cases which have the same mean. They're just variable. What do we get? We get that the subjects still can solve this problem. They don't even have to understand the system very well. They can still solve the problem. But it turns out that if there's any inequality in these systems, and when one of those big crises hits, people get angry and groups collapse. So when things get variable, people get more sensitive to uh, inequality in the system. And it turns out we, 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 we give them exit quizzes and we, we ask them how well they understand the system, so on and so forth. It turns out that uh, you have to understand the system better as well. In a stable environment, you don't even have to understand how the systems work. If you just apply simple equity principles, 
they can solve this problem. When you get uncertainty, people have to start to understand how the system works to even cooperate. Okay? So we did this with undergraduate students. Does it matter? Well, we did it in the field in Colombia and Thailand, and it doesn't matter. We did it with fishing communities. We did it with irrigation agriculture communities. We did it with dryland agricultural communities. And they can all solve this problem. And it turns out that we can, in those communities, we can do surveys to try to get a sense of the levels of trust in those communities. It turns out that, in fact, trust is a much more important determinant of whether the systems function than is your particular understanding of the system. Like fishers, people from fishing communities can play just as well as people from irrigated agriculture uh, communities who actually do irrigated agriculture for a living. All right, what have we learned? What have we learned by doing these uh, modeling and, and uh, experimental exercises? Uh, adaptive institutions increase robustness. Robustness is a short-term, shorter-term um, kind of objective that you want to work towards if, you, if you're working for longer-term resilience. Uh, but these systems are fragile in the sense that they are, we look across multiple cases. I've only shown you one here. But it turns out that these systems are very highly tuned. The governance systems and the biophysical systems are very highly tuned. So if we want to port these ideas anywhere, we have to be very sensitive about the fact that they're fragile. And of course, collective action, the capacity of communities to work together, uh, is very sensitive to um, trust issues. Finally. Uh, I want to close with just a, a simple remark about uh, this issue that's come up in the literature recently called double exposure, referred to as double exposure. I believe that these communities are very, very resilient and robust, and they could communicate with, uh, they could deal with a lot of climate change, uh, climate change-induced local weather shifts very easily. They could also deal with lots of social and economic shifts as well. But dealing with both together, the work here suggests that's going to be tough. They're going to be getting hit with both climate change activities, trying to climate change induced weather pattern changes. They're trying to maintain collective action because it's a more complex problem to deal with, right? They have to maintain some notions of fairness and equity as they cope with the variation. But they're also being challenged with outside opportunities where people can leave, go to the cities and work, come back, start to get some inequalities, not only from irrigated agriculture, but from different activities, you may see the, the capacity for cooperation collapse. Uh, I'm going to skip that. I just want to uh, thank all my compatriots who uh, contribute to this work. Uh, lots of collaborators at ASU and around the world who help us uh, interview people in these communities and run the experiments. And of course, financial support. Thank you. Okay. Our last speaker is Craig Allen from the University of Nebraska. He is a professor of the School of Natural Resources and the leader of the Nebraska Cooperative Fish and Wildlife Service Unit. And I've decided to be in resilience work, you have to have a long title. <laughs> Craig. Thank you, Anne. Wow, bright lights. Um, <laughs> when I first came here in 2004, I really uh, certainly did not expect that I'd be at a conference focused on resilience uh, several years later. And in fact, the, the concept of resilience has, has seems to have gotten out all over. Um, and that's a good thing. And I think it's a great thing that we're talking about it today. There's a downside, though. It brings a bunch of ecologists into a room, 
And uh, Lance Gunderson and some co-authors recently suggested that um, ecologists, rather than economists, sorry economists, perhaps should be called the dismal science um, because of the sort of negative, <laughs> negative uh, story we have to tell so often. My purpose today is just to give an overview of uh, resilience concepts, talk about um, ecosystem services, some other aspects of resilience, and then bring us back to a couple Nebraska examples about why it matters in the Platte River Valley specifically, and finally to throw out some questions, some unanswered questions that we really need to think about. So at first I'm just going to talk about ecosystem services and why we care, but pretty briefly, so bear with me. So humans, as we all know, rely upon ecosystems in some places more than in others, perhaps, or so it would seem. But in all cases, humans are reliant upon a wide variety of ecosystem services that, that have a wide range. Things like nutrient cycling, soil formation we've already heard about in, in agricultural and other systems, production critical for crop and other kind of systems, provisioning services that we rely upon as well, things like food, water critical, of course, fuel, fiber, and wood, and things like regulating services, things like climate regulation, hydrological regulation, disease regulation, if you will, and water purification. Finally, there is another suite of sort of services, if you will, that we count on from ecological systems, and these are sort of cultural services, things like the aesthetic aspect associated with these systems, educational, recreational, and spiritual. Anybody see any irony to the pictures I have in here? They are all invasive species. <laughs> that was just an inside joke, sorry. So, we're looking at uh, unprecedented change in the world today, and one that's important and, and one that brings us here today, perhaps, is, is that the fact that more land has been converted to cropland in the last 30 years than in the previous 150 years. So we've already converted a lot of land, and you've, we've seen those kind of statistics in talk after talk after talk. Uh, there's been a lot of land use change in the world. It's not just cropland changes, but it's all kinds of other land use, land cover change hitting basically being global at this point, changing every corner of the earth from Laos to Thailand to South Africa to the US. With those changes in cropland and land use are, are a few other depressing sort of changes. 20% of the world's reefs have been lost and 20% are degraded. Predictions are that most coral reefs in the world are, are very vulnerable at this point and near or at a tipping point. Mangrove areas and other sort of coastal nesterine habitat has been lost. The water in, held in reservoirs has increased, and you may see that as a very positive thing, or if you're a fishery scientist, I'm not sure if a fishery scientist sees that as a good thing since reservoirs provide fisheries, but clearly reservoirs af uh, affect the flow of natural streams. But withdrawals concomitant with that, withdrawals from rivers and lakes have doubled in the past 40 or 50 years. A critical thing to keep in mind is that 
many ecological systems right now are probably compromised, and a lot of the effects that we will see in the future are lagging. That is, we may be too late, we may have crossed tipping points already, and just those tipping points have not manifest for us yet. What the case is for agricultural systems, I'm not sure. So, but there is a change, there is an impact in ecological systems, and, and the fact is that the distribution of species on Earth has been more homogenous. I work with invasive species, so those species you saw in pictures a while ago occur in more places than they used to, and what we're losing is usually a suite of endemic species. So we lose sort of um, local endemic biodiversity, and we gain sort of these sort of what we call tramp species that are spread around the world. The same thing, though, is happening in agriculture, where we see the increasing loss. We've heard it in, in other water for food conferences, where Nebraska farmers used to typically raise um, something in the order of 15 different crops, crops and livestock species. Now most farmers specialize on one or two. And that's happening globally as well. Perhaps in some places like Southeast Asia, that's happening less rapidly. But it is a global uh, phenomenon. And with that are some costs. One of the costs is these sort of surprises that manifest. These surprises manifest when we sort of cope with slow driving variable change, like climate. And, and cope with it up to a certain point, and then there's a rapid reorganization. We've seen that in a lot of systems. This happens to be sort of the Sahara Sahel um, from some thousand years ago. But we see it in a lot of systems. So we've seen these sort of nonlinear rapid changes in fisheries, where we've seen fisheries collapses. You've seen the example of Lake Victoria with, with Nile perch introductions. The classic cases are the lakes that go from clear states to eutrophic states, but we also see the disease emergence, species introductions, and landscape fragmentations, where we can slowly fragment and landscape and not have a major impact on, say, the flow of species. But when you get a critical threshold, a percolation threshold, you lose landscape connectivity, and process can't um, travel across a landscape. So resilience. You've heard a couple different definitions of resilience here. I'd like to stick with a really, really simple one. And that is that resilience is the amount of disturbance a system can withstand before it transforms or, radically re or rapidly reorganizes into a different state. So resilience, Linne gave an example of how um, resilience was different from stability. To me, resilience is different from stability because stability suggests that there's only one state a system can be in. That is, you can disturb a system as much as you want. And the only thing to be concerned about is how quick it'll take before it, to, before it returns to its original state. But if there's multiple states possible, then the system can transform from one state to another, and it can be difficult to get a system back. So examples that we've seen some of before is that, that are relevant to agriculture in here. So rangelands can go from grass state to a shrub state, sort of media, mediated by um, grazing and drought at the wrong time, some sort of um, wrong decisions at the wrong time kind of cases. 
And another case is relevant that we see happening here in Nebraska is um, grasslands that can become grasslands to brushlands to, in our cases, mostly cedar-dominated properties. And once you, you get that change, it's very difficult to switch back. The reason it's difficult to switch back is this property known as hysteresis. Hysteresis can be um, perhaps best defined as occurring when the path in is different from the path out. So let me give you an example of that. So the Platte River, something we all know about here, um, used to be sort of a typical southwestern or western kind of river of, of braided many channels, sort of open sandbar habitats in, in, in mid-channel. And these channels were maintained by processes of flooding that occurred every once in a while. But routinely, they'd scour the sandbars. Now the river has changed state completely. What has happened is that the flooding processes have changed and we, because of dams and, and outtake from the river, we've, we've reduced the variability of the hydrograph. We don't get those cleansing pulses of water. And what's happened is we've gotten cottonwood and other tree invasion, invasive species coming in onto these river bars. As we know, that's an expensive and problematic situation because there's endangered species involved and we start getting the federal government involved and we know what happens when that happens. Hysteresis is even worse in this river because Phragmites has followed and some other invasive plant, herbaceous plants, have followed behind the tree invasions. So if there wasn't hysteresis, all we'd have to do to recover the river is to put back those flooding processes. But once the river's sandbars have become armored with Phragmites, common reed, and trees, to get the river back, you can't just put the floods back. You also have got to cut the trees. And now you've not only got to cut the trees, but you've also got to spray the Phragmites. And the state just spent something like $10 million spraying the Platte River for Phragmites. Um, and even then, you still got to bulldoze into the sandbars because Phragmites and these trees have very solid root systems that persist for years. So hysteresis is a real problem in systems when they can change state. So because of that, I would contend to you that it's in humanity's best interest to maintain a system in a desirable state when it is in a desirable state. What's that say um, about water? Well, for water, our US EPA and others call for sustainable use of water, whatever that may mean. US EPA says that means policies and strategies that meet society's needs, present needs, without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs, whatever that may mean. But for us, what's it really mean? It means that we know that the systems we're in right now are changing and that they will be different in the future. But that future of the riverine and agricultural systems that we manage is going to be unknown or is unknown. So what do we do when there's global change and in the face of that change, we're not quite sure what to do? There's a few strategies. One would be to enhance the resilience of a system in a desirable state. Or you could build the adaptive capacity of the state, something that Marty talked about a little bit. 
you can encourage transformations to alternative desired states if you know what those alternative states are and you know how to transform the system. So what does resilience look like in an agricultural landscape? It's one of many questions that seem to be unknown to us right now, and I'll throw out that and a few others. That being a critical one. Um, a second one being what's the relationship and what are the trade-offs among ecological, agricultural, social, and economic resilience? You certain, I'm sure, heard that um, small Sweden or very diverse small landowner kind of farming is quite sustainable. You have a high diversity of plants. There's usually quite a lot of wildlife. And others would say that a big um, swath of landscape of corn is not very resilient. And in, in some cases, both those cases are going to be correct. The fact is there, there's alternate, there's um, different aspects of resilience which can compensate for each other. Some of the, the corn lands here would be very vulnerable to disease outbreak, but because there's such an economic output from these lands, farmers can probably be resilient to that kind of situation by having a strong economic aspect. Whereas a farmer in Africa would be devastated and perhaps forced off his land with one very bad year. Another question for sort of managing agricultural landscapes for resilience is what are thresholds in those systems and can we identify them? So the thresholds may be in social systems. Is there some threshold of, of sort of average age of farmer that should be of great concern to us? Is there landscape frag, uh, thresholds, which might be degree of fragmentation upon, beyond which we don't get percolation of processes across landscapes? And are there economic and other thresholds on these systems? And finally, not quite finally, but almost finally, what agricultural landscapes may need transformation? How do I identify those? I know there's a lot of um, interest here in, in improving water use efficiency in agricultural landscape. There's some real questions that, that to what landscapes and what areas we apply that fix to or some other fix to. And it's very critical that we try to understand those differences. And one question that I think um, gives me pause anyways, because I don't know the answer to this. How close to the brink are we? What is the resilience of the landscape that we're currently living in? Are we near a brink or are we not? And I don't know the answer to that, and I think some people are starting to think about it. It's an important question. Thanks. One of the questions I have is, are there criteria we should be using to assess agricultural landscapes? And if so, what are they? Somebody? <laughs> I think Alex. Well, um, so I think it's going to be a set of different things. Uh, if you're looking at smallholder farmers in Africa, I, I think assessing resilience at a smallholder farming system is going to be a composite of things. It's kind of the, uh, 
the productivity of the land, but also the household well-being outcomes that kind of proceed from from those systems. Uh, uh, so it's kind of the uh, the, the socio-economic side of things, but also the ecological functionality of those landscapes, and, and kind of think about some easy measurable uh, 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 variables around those would be important uh, uh, to think about. So it, it, it can be one number. And scaling would be very important. If what you're doing on, in a particular, be it farm or, or small landscape, has high cost upstream or downstream or elsewhere in the basin, um, which is often the case, especially with, with um, your kind of example, Alex, with eutrophication, um, then we're doing something wrong. Uh, I, I just wanted to comment on some work we've done in rangelands. Uh, you saw the picture of the flip from kind of an open woody grassland to a shrubby desert a couple of times and we've worked extensively on these systems in Australia and it turns out that you can plot some kind of measure of economic viability debt loads against some kind of species distribution of, of uh, wood, woody plants and grass plants to get a sense of where you are in, in the resilience landscape, the capacity of that system to cope with shocks. Uh, that kind of system though seems easier to me to see those kinds of variables in than does an agricultural landscape, which I guess has a lot more information below ground about what's going on. It's a little bit harder to read. I think, Go ahead, Lene. Okay, thanks. Um, I think there are a couple of different ways of answering that question. I think it's a very difficult question to answer in many ways. There has been quite a lot of uh, research recently on trying to detect where regime shifts are in the landscapes. Um, and how close we are to regime shifts, etc. Some of that research indicates that once you can actually detect the regime shifts, it's already too late. Um, things have happened, feedbacks have set in that will move your system into this uh, other regime, regardless of how you change management practices at the time. That shows, I think, that we need to kind of look for thresholds of concern rather than the actual thresholds. So some type of uh, limits to which we as a group decide we can't cross um, uh, and, and that we want to set those prior to where we expect them to actually be in the landscape. So that's one, one way of answering the question. And another thing is that I think often when you think about resilient thinking, um, people are trying to find the, the optimal way of measuring resilience of a system. I think resilience thinking have a lot of other things to bring to the table. It, it forces you to focus on integrated social ecological processes in general. It forces you to look more at dynamics of systems and what's happening in times of uh, surprise and uncertainty, and it forces you to pay attention to what's happening at different scales uh, of your system. And I think those things are interesting to bring from resilience thinking, regardless if you can know the actual sort of uh, um, levels of resilience of a system. So uh, you mentioned scale. Does scale of analysis matter? I think it matters. I, I just <laughs> continue, but I, I think it matters a lot. And one thing that we often say is that 
regardless of your focal scale, if your focal scale is a farm, for example, or, or a watershed, you should look at at least one scale above and the one scale below of your system to see what are the processes that are changing, that are affecting your, your focal scale. So if you're a farmer, you're interested in the resilience of your farm, you should look at more also what are field-level things that can undermine that resilience, or what are the larger regional system changes that are affecting your, your farm. Anybody else want to respond to that? Yeah, I just wanted to mention that um, processes which look perfectly adaptive at one scale, for example, at government level, certain policies, if you look at it at another scale, at the level of a community, you can actually very easily discover that it creates new vulnerabilities because of this mismatch between the scales. And we're doing work on climate change adaptation and looking at how some of these adaptation plans are creating unexpected vulnerabilities at another scale. Could you give an example of that? Well, if we look at, for example, the, uh, the South African National Water Act is an example where the high-level policies at the, at the macro level, uh, they look very logical. And when you actually go down to the, to the river scale, you find that people are very, find it very difficult to cope with the complexities that's been created and the amount of red tape, for example, that's been created for them. But if you look at it only at the top, at the high-level scale, it looks like a very good adaptation. I see a question at the mic. I can't see who you are with the lights, but Hi. is that well, you, Ken? It, I'm Ken Kassman, uh, Agronomist, University of Nebraska. And so my question is, uh, as you look at resilience in, in regions, watersheds, uh, even countries, um, is there a limit to human carrying capacity at which resilience is impossible? Marty. <laughs> uh, the, the kind of um, the kind of approach that we take uh, that looks at what I called robustness uh, really focuses on feedback systems and how feedback systems can respond to different kinds of shocks and change. If you look at very simple examples of those feedback systems, there are conservation laws. And one of those conservation laws is, interestingly, uh, we're all familiar with the sort of risk rate of return trade-off, risk performance or robustness performance trade-off, but a much more subtle issue is uh, robustness vulnerability trade-offs. You can become robust to some kinds of shocks, but you necessarily become fragile to others. Now, as you as you change the dynamics in those systems by, say, increasing population, uh, I would argue that, um, uh, indeed, there's going to be some kind of carrying capacity. And many people argue that, well, you know, there's always a capacity for technology to relieve constraints. That's always an easy argument to make. And it's a hard one to refute because, in fact, that's been the historical uh, experience that we've had. But I would argue that this robustness, fragility kind of trade-off is what's going to get you in the end. And what's going to happen is, is you're going to be able to use technology to be, increase robustness, continually increase robustness in your capacity to stay within one of these configurations for a while, but you're going to become fragile to certain frequencies of shocks, and your system engineers call it bandwidth, your capacity to, to uh, respond quickly to certain kinds of shocks. You will lose that. And eventually, I think uh, I, would, I would agree with you that the way that something like human population is going to come and get us will be in our lack of capacity to respond to very specific types of shocks. Yeah, I, I, um, 
I think that's an incredibly difficult question to, to try to, to resolve, largely because of the, what we do and don't know about humans' ability to innovate. Hmm. I mean, we've shocked ourselves over and over again when we thought the end was near and somehow we figured it out. But I actually agree with, with Marty to a point that I think there, sooner or later there's going to be some surprise um, that we're not going to be able to innovate our way, way out of at, at a, a macro level. And there's been those things through time, you know, where we've, uh, disease, human disease is a primary example where you, you know, we've, we've seen those arise, wipe out populations, and then we recover. And that's the, that's the difficulty. But, I, but I'm focusing on resilience and functioning ecosystems and intact in, in, and, and, and integrity of, of uh, wildlife and, and uh, natural resources. So your answer is that we've succeeded in increasing our numbers, meaning that maybe there's not a carrying capacity, but you've all demonstrated that there's serious ecological problems out there. So we haven't been successful in that in the face of rising populations. So that was my question. Can we expect to have resilient functioning ecosystems if we can't define thresholds also for carrying capacity? Well, I'll give you an example from uh, uh, savanna ecosystems in, 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 in Eastern Africa uh, using the example of uh, how those systems are maintained through fire and elephant uh, grazing, for instance. And when uh, kind of modern management systems around these national parks came into place, we put boundaries around these parks and separated these national parks by human populations. So in a sense, you're kind of constraining the ranging behavior of these large mammals. And some of the uh, national parks now are completely dysfunctional from an ecological standpoint because elephant populations have shot up and there's no capability for dispersal. Uh, we've restricted fire in these ecosystems and kind of damaged them so they're no longer savanna systems, the bushland encroachment, making it very difficult for uh, numerous species to survive. So in, in, in a sense, you're constraining range and, and ranging behavior by changing the habitat characteristics. So in a sense, there's a certain kind of threshold beyond which resilience cannot, cannot happen, in, in, uh, especially in wildlife, in wild systems that are now intensely human-managed. Christo, you had a comment. Yeah, I wanted to say that clearly uh, the number of consumers in the system is a very important determinant of how resilient the system will be. But there is another part of that equation, and that is how those consumers actually act and interact, how they network, how they make decisions, how they cooperate. And one thing is for certain that as the number of the human population density increases in a particular area, that ability to organize, learn, and innovate becomes increasingly crucial. And uh, we, we've looked at systems where there's actually been an out-migration of people. And the problem was that when those people out-migrated, degradation set in because it was the innovators who left. There were people who were able, who had the capacity to go and seek for jobs elsewhere. They were able-bodied able people with some or other innovation capacity which got them to leave the system. But the net result was degradation. Lene, did you have comment? Well, I, I'm, I'm quite convinced that we, nine billion people can live quite well on this planet. I think there is, uh, I think we've seen a lot of environmental degradation, etc. And, and, uh, but we also know we can improve the, improve the capacity 
of agricultural system to be much more multifunctional, for example. A lot of the food we're pr producing are wasted today. Um, a lot of it doesn't go into food production, etc. So, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm sure that we can find innovative ways to do that if we are able to be a bit better at what Christo is suggesting. Another question. Thank you. My name is Krishna Prashad, and I'm from UNESCO IUC Institute for Water Education, located in the Netherlands. Um, I was particularly intrigued, actually, test by the presentation about response of the small-scale irrigation systems or small-scale farmers. Um, there are some interesting words being coined here. Resilience, uh, carrying capacity, trying to maintain the status quo, as if there is one pre-assumption that whatever system that exists or regime that exists prevails is already functioning optimally. That's uh, something uh, problematic, I find, especially for small farmers who are under tremendous pressures economically, also for other many reasons, um, yeah, decreasing labor force in the rural areas, changing climate conditions and all. They need to change. They are trying to make or induce or yeah, introduce new changes, new practices to be able to kind of improve returns from the uh, practices, agricultural practices uh, they are doing or they want to do in the future compared to the past. Mm. So they want to change. So regime change is inevitable. Unless that happens, there will not be any gain uh, in the foreseeable future. And if, especially if you are looking at uh, ways to produce or to be able to produce more food with limited resources or increasingly limited resources that we're likely to face. Aren't we talking about uh, kind of uh, from the perspective of status quoism or quoism? Maybe there is a need to look at it uh, from a different perspective. How probably those changes in the regime can be brought in without compromising on longer-term sustainability or the productivity of those resource base instead of looking at it from regime change itself. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, um, I completely agree. Um, remember, I showed you this image of looking at case studies and developing models and coming back to case studies. The presumption we take is that many of the exemplar long-lived irrigation systems or other social ecological systems um, have become well adapted to certain contexts, certain kinds of disturbances that they're, that they're faced with. So what we try to do is we use them like uh, evolutionary biologists use a fruit fly. They uh, exhibit all the key components of larger scale systems that, that we live in. Namely, you have to provide public infrastructure. So there's that key element of providing public infrastructure, just like we have to provide roads and sewage systems, so on and so forth. Then they face a coordination dilemma, how to divide up the waters, just like we still have groundwater problems in the United States or when the Colorado River volumes get down to the point where the compact starts to get litigated, you're going to see that same kind of story I told there. So by no means do we assume that there's any sort of romantic idea that those systems are really, really uh, uh, well operating. But I, what we do believe is that by looking at them, we can learn key features, key themes that enable those communities to solve difficult problems. And if we can connect those systems into a multi-level governance regime where we can preserve that capacity in some abstract sense, 
so that they can, in fact, change and adapt, preserve what they do well, and protect them from where they're vulnerable to give them the space they need to respond to these kinds of changes. But thank you for making that point, because I didn't make it that clearly in my presentation. We're not presuming that these are great systems and we should keep them as they are. Christo, do you want to talk about peanuts? Talk about peanut farmers? Oh, right. <laughs> Yeah, and Australian researchers, together with some members of our network, have done research on peanut farmers in Australia. And, um, and what they try to um, assess people's sense of uh, connectedness and identity to and, and belonging to that particular farming system and, and their mental models of themselves as peanut farmers. And what they found was that a characteristic that we would normally associate with resilience, i.e. that sense of belonging, sense of identity, sense of cohesiveness, is actually counting against these farmers because if you look at the changes around them, they should do something else because the climate is no longer actually suitable for peanut farming in that part of the world. But they're so strongly connected to who they are and to the land and to the peanut farming enterprise that they are completely unwilling to make that transformation because the comment that uh, the gentleman made is actually about the need to transform versus the need to build resilience. Transformation means getting out of a hole. Resilience means digging yourself deeper into it. Gary, is that you out there? Yeah, and actually that good lead into the question I wanted to ask. I'm Gary Linney. I'm a behavioral economist anymore. I started out as a very traditional agricultural economist, but over the years I've gotten fascinated by what drives and motivates farmers to do what they do on their farms, and that's what I've been working on for a long time. And, and something that you said this morning, Christo, and what you just said just now, actually, is kind of relates to my question. This morning you said that there are bad resilience. There's resilient systems that are bad and resilient systems that are good. Mm -hmm. And I guess what I'm fascinated and curious about is, and you mentioned the identity phenomenon. I found that in farming populations, they identify with a certain way of farming. They buy into that vision, that way of doing things together. And I'm wondering, how do we decide? How do we figure out what? path is a better path? How do we decide which resilient system is better than the one we system we're in now if it's not considered better right now? I mean, what, how do we know? And how do we, what are the processes we get to, what processes we've used to get the group you just mentioned in Australia, how do we get that group to consider new possibilities? And then once they are considering them, how do they decide what's the best? Well, I think that, that's a little bit like the holy grail, right, is to decide wh when to build resilience and when to build this transformative capacity. And so having worked with a, a little bit, I'll give you an example of uh, my colleague Alison Quinlan and I went to Tajikistan and we worked with uh, rural villagers in Tajikistan. And, and, and those systems are actually from a social and cultural perspective incredibly resilient. And, and, and it's a combination of ideology, religion, and also what the Russians, before they pulled out, what they left behind in terms of infrastructure. And we went through a process, and we, we spent weeks in those villages, actually getting people to assess where they currently are. And we're looking at scenario building as a, as a tool, and assessing if they stayed in the situation that they are, 
currently in. What would the future hold for them? And, and all I can say is that that realization of the need to transform has to come from within. You know, and, and, and it's a long process. And it's a process of collaborative model building. There's tools called companion modeling. There's also um, this, this scenario role-playing that, that we used in that particular instance. And even then, when people are culturally so strongly locked into, I, I almost use the word trapped in a particular identity, transformation becomes a really, really daunting task. Yeah, yeah and, and I think there's uh, some classic examples from the world of fisheries, um, not so much inland, small scale, although Lake Victoria may present an interesting case study, but um, certainly the New England cod fishery, in which for years and years those fishers knew that that Everyone knew essentially that fishery is on the verge of collapse, but the cultural identity of being in the small scale, well, it wasn't really small scale, but the, 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 the cod fishery that you identified with being a cod fisher. And in fact, when you, you know, I've seen people give, uh, some of the people from those, that fishery give talks and tears come to their eyes, not because so much the cod are gone, but because their way of being as they've known it for generations is no longer. I mean, they, they basically, when it collapsed, they were done. I mean, the boats were shuttered, they were sold, and they had to find other means of livelihood. Um, many of them switched to other forms of fishing, but that's a different story. But, I mean, it, it really is sort of how do you energize people to do the, not so much the, the ecological shift, which everyone knew was, was coming, but the cultural shift. What is the motivation, and how do you break that sort of identity, I think, is really difficult for many communities. The sort of uh, opposite of that, perhaps, uh, uh, the positive example, a Gary might be familiar with anyways, is mullet fisheries in, in Florida, which, because of commercial yeah. competition between commercial and recreational fishing and other issues, the mullet fishery was declining um, very rapidly, and there's a a commercial mullet fishery in, in sort of the bend of the Bay of Florida area around Cedar Key. And there was government policy that shut down that fishery. And of course, the folks there were totally tied up in being mullet fisher people. But the government also put in quite a bit of effort to transform that system. And now that place produces more clams than anywhere else in the US. The folks are proud of the clam fishery. They are now the clam instead of the mullet capital of the world. <laughs> and transformation actually happened, and it happened successfully. So, so it's possible. Anybody else want to respond to that? I just wanted to say that, that really understanding and looking at case studies where these transformations out of an undesirable state or an untenable state have actually happened would really I think it'll get us somewhere, and we need lots of examples and really to, to, to understand them in the way that Marty is understanding those irrigations. Go ahead. Uh, Wayne Wolt, Biological Systems Engineering. And I'll toss you an easy question after Gary's holy grail question here. Um, as I've explored the concept of resilience, I found myself wanting more mathematical background or a mathematical kind of foundation. And I've heard it said 
probably by a mathematician, that if one can describe something mathematically, then one understands that thing, whether it's a complex system, for example. And I'm just wondering what your sense is in terms of the state of the mathematical underpinning of this concept of resilience and where you might see it going as we move forward. Alex, I think that might be one, or not Alex, Marty, might be one for you. <laughs> yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think um, the whole concept of resilience was born in the minds of a couple of mathematicians. In fact, Buzz Holling uh, did a lot of work on spruce budworm interactions in Canadian boreal forests in the 70s and 80s. And uh, he worked with a, a mathematician at UBC, a mathematical biologist named Don Ludwig, who um, developed a range of different models, partial differential equation models and, and uh, ordinary differential equation models, to describe the basic interaction of fast and slow variables. And the kind of interaction in between fast and slow variables has been explored in many different mathematical contexts and is not unique to resilience, but it provides a really nice template for, for resilience. So we've studied lakes, rangelands, some irrigation systems, some uh, uh, fisheries systems uh, using a range of different mathematical models, mainly differential equation models and agent-based models. Moving forward, I think the challenge is the following. You can get a lot of insights. For example, I myself developed a very simple model with four variables, woody biomass, grass biomass, um, fire and grazing to describe these kinds of flips that can occur with increasing grazing pressure and fire frequency and those sorts of things. But you hit a real wall of mathematical utility with model complexity as the number of variables goes up. You know, Buzz Holling always talked about the rule of five. If you've got more than five variables in your model, you're going to struggle to get any kind of rich uh, phenomenological uh, outcomes. But the next question, or the next kind of avenue, I think is, a very careful articulation between simple models and complex agent-based models that allow for that richness of agents, humans, to interact in the landscape and kind of try to pin from the middle, uh, you know, looking for scaling laws, how, how we can get some intermediate complexity and get a really strong handle on what's going on. But it's a tough mathematical challenge, and I invite you to join and help. Another question. Yeah. Thanks, Ann. My name's Chad Smith. I guess I'm going to ask for advice since you have assembled a panel of smart people. Um, I coordinate adaptive management for the Platte River Recovery Implementation Program. Those of you going on the field tour are going to get to hear from one of my colleagues tomorrow and see um, probably some newer pictures of what Craig showed in discussing the Platte. Um, my advice question is how or if I, as I try to deliver science to decision makers on the plat, two or three of which are in the room today, so I guess I better be careful about what I say. <laughs> how or if I talk about resilience to those folks in the context of the, the questions that we're trying to answer, the hypotheses that we're trying to test, the program that was written before Phragmites ever showed up, and a program that certainly doesn't have the word resilience in the giant thick binder that governs what we do. Um, although I'm sure he wouldn't claim it as Kyle Hoagland might not either. I'm still a PhD student under Craig and, and Kyle. <laughs> I, I understand resilience, hysteresis, those kind of things, but it's completely different when you try to talk um, 
about resilience in the context of a North American species recovery program, which is what we work in. And so I, this is something I kind of ask whenever I get uh, in front of an assembled mass of, of resilience folks. How, how do we talk about it and make it matter to people on a, on a decision-making basis, uh, either now or in the future as we go forward on the plat? Go ahead. Dad. Yeah, I, I have a few thoughts on this because it's an issue that um, at least our, my little part of the federal government thinks about a lot. And so also my, I think this is something that's common regardless of whether it's resilience or adaptive management or whatever. And it's, it's sort of a different way of thinking about how to do science, which we're trying to implement um, within our little part of the world, which is actually bringing decision makers and scientists and all involved together throughout the entire process. And I think we have to get, at least the traditional approach had always been, you know, the managers say we need X, and then the scientists run off and give them Y, and then the managers go, well, we didn't want Y, and so now we're going to make a decision anyway. We got to get away from that, um, because it isn't helping either of our communities, and we have to be able to figure out the vocabulary that allows us to talk across sort of decisions in science, and we need to identify the questions that need research, but we also have to then feedback what's the realistic science approach to answering those questions. So it's a, it's a constant iterative process instead of a sort of, we've been, what we've actually been saying to, to, to our partners is getting away from the conveyor belt approach to science, which is you say you want a car and we put the windshield wipers on, but we forgot to put the headlights in and then you didn't want the car and we're kind of fabulous why you didn't want our car. So that's the way we've been trying, and we're starting to initialize that through sort of a strategic decision approach. So basically really defining with the right group of people what the questions are we need to answer. And then the scientists are very clear on what they need to then go off and, and provide input for, and um, we'll see how that goes. I mean, we're starting to pilot this in terms of climate adaptation measures within Interior. Um, we have hope, uh, and we'll see if if hope translates into reality and, and good stuff, so. Go ahead, Marty. Did you have other? Um, Christo this morning put up a link for the Golden Broken Catchment Management Authority. And in 2000, uh, Brian Walker, the co-conspirator of Christo, who was previously the science director of the Resilience Alliance, uh, assembled a team of resilience thinking folks who are now dispersed all over the planet. And we all went down to the Golden Broken Catchment Management Authority in Shepparton. Uh, in the state of Victoria and Australia, which is a very major agricultural region. They produce, uh, I think, 25% of Victoria's GDP, and they, they produce most of the fruit, or a huge proportion of the fruit for Eastern Australia. And they were having salinity problems, where uh, there, has land there was land clearing higher in the catchment. It was allowing uh, more water recharge high in the catchment than was then increasing groundwater pressure in the lower part, in the irrigated part of the catchment and bringing water tables within maybe a meter of the surface, which then brings salt to the surface through capillary action. So when we went in, and that's a hard system to think about resilience in because it's not very dynamic. It's really slow. But there are multiple stable attractors, right? If it gets too salty, it's tough to reverse that, especially when it, it's dry. But what we try to do is get them to think, if I were to go into these, these areas and say, okay, we're going to do a resilience assessment or try to communicate with policymakers and 
practitioners about resilience, the first thing we would talk about, I think, would be you've got to recognize, you've got to try to work in your area and categorize what are the key timescales that are operating, what things are happening on sort of century timescales, decadal timescales, annual timescales. The other thing is, is to recognize, as Lena said, is this tightly coupled social ecological system. You cannot look at the technological infrastructure, social economic part of the system without considering feedbacks to the agricultural and, and ecosystem components of the system. And in my mind, you, given this resilience, fragility, conservation, you can only push your capacity to cope with change around in the system. I mean, you can increase it in general, but you're eventually going to hit a point where you're, you're going to push your adaptive capacity more towards technology, or you can invest in natural capital and push your capacity to cope more into the natural domain. So I think it's really a conversation about trade-offs between do we invest in, in, in improving technology to cope with change, or do we invest in uh, emphasizing ecosystem function to give us the capacity to cope with change. And I think once you get people to think like that, pretty soon they do what they want with it. And now I think for the Golden Broken Catchment Management Authority's plan, resilience is kind of the core idea. And they, people take it in their own direction. So you, you, you engage them with these interesting stories of timescales and trade-offs and integration between social and economic and then let them go. Any other comments on that, Linda? Um, Maybe just briefly, but I, I think uh, so one experience is that a lot of practitioners, especially, maybe rather than uh, um, decision makers or so, it's very in um, resonates very well with a lot of, uh, of um, uh, the understanding of, of pe people's understanding of their systems, uh, resilient thinking. But I think that I also have a feeling that there are people are understanding it in different ways and are open to resilience ideas in different ways. And maybe in communication, it's also about finding the people who really are interested in understanding these dynamics of the system they're working in. Some people just want the clear solution, and that, then it's harder to communicate. Any other comments? Well, I think our time is up. Can we give the panel a round of applause? <laughs>